1: People kind of get it immediately. I feel like there is so much-ish cooking out there, but it's not explicitly branded that way. This kind of thing is really familiar. It's like the classic immigrant story. You know, you move to a new country, you search for the flavors of home, you don't have access to all the ingredients, so
0: these hybridized dishes come about. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm Editor-in-Chief Matt Rodbard, here with senior editor Anna Anahizal.
2: Today, we're excited to have Priya Krishna on the show. You might recognize her from a recent Today Show appearance. You might know her as the author of Indianish. You also might know her as the author of the taste column that we call the country's best yogurt column, or for short, TCBYC. Later, Max Falkowitz will be answering a question from a listener. But let's talk about Priya's cookbook.
0: We talked about the book, which is Indian-ish. I love it. We talked a month after the book came out, and we dove into one of her most popular recipes, the sag feta.
2: I'm seeing it everywhere. Everyone's making it.
0: We are in the era of the viral recipe, Anna. It's happening. It's happening, and we talked about what people are saying, some of the feedback, some of the shit people are talking about it, which is inevitable for any cookbook. But we also talked about some of the work Priya has done for taste, She's written about sun-dried tomatoes, the badino, and of course, yogurt, which she loves so much.
2: She knows more about yogurt than anyone else I know.
0: She's written like five, six columns. I think this could go to like 60, 70.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Here's Matt talking to Priya Krishna.
0: Priya Krishna, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thank you. Really excited to have you here. Uh, it's about a month after your book came out. I want to just get the sense. Um, what kind of shit are people giving you for your recipes? Because I know there's people are going to give you shit for your recipes. Yeah. Because that's the nature of writing cookbooks. Totally. People take issue. They have issues.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest comes from like India, other Indians, specifically Indians from India, who are like horrified seeing olive oil being called for and sourdough bread. Um, yeah. I mean, I get a good amount of backlash from them but I feel like that's to be expected like I shared that with other cookbook authors who have kind of done this ish style and they're like oh yeah I get an email like every week from someone who's pissed
0: off about a recipe but (laughs) I mean that's not to say that people actually are enjoying the recipes for the most part though
1: yeah no I mean I feel like I'm constantly checking my Instagram DMs it's like every day there's like 30 new people who've made something from the book and it's not just the sag feta which has been the runaway hit um, it's cool.
0: Let's talk about the SAG, feta, spinach, and feta. It's like miraculously universal. Yeah. Those flavors, that texture, those ingredients. Yeah. It's really taken off. Did not expect that at all.
1: I feel like when you write a book, I don't know if you felt this way about Koreatown, but like you certain recipes you're like, oh, this recipe is really gonna kill it. Like this is one the one that's gonna resonate. And I feel like it's never the one you think it will yeah. be. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I had, we had this kimchi snickerdoodle that Eric Bruner Yang did. I thought it would like totally kill with like white chocolate. Yeah. And, like It was like people were like, what the heck? Like, that <laughs> wasn't great. Um, but we did. It was pre-Instagram, unfortunately, so we didn't really have that like meme thing. But I will say this. I've seen your, your sag everywhere. And I'm wondering why is this one taking off? So I
1: think it's something that people know. I think people know yeah. sag feta. It's like one of those dishes that a lot of Indian restaurants yeah. offer. And it's like a the gravy is really good. It's made with whole spices. Like the twist is something that's really accessible and mm-hmm. familiar. It's like taking a familiar dish and doing something yeah. like a little mm-hmm. unexpected to it. And I think people know that spinach and feta, you know, because of dishes like spanakopita, mm-hmm. these are flavors that go together really well. Um, but what
0: makes it Indian then?
1: Is this the sag the sog feta, just, the sag paneer. Just yeah. the sag
0: the sog paneer. Element. Yeah,
1: I yeah. mean, sag paneer is a very classic yeah. North Indian dish. We're just subbing out the paneer for feta, but you're still learning these basics of Indian yeah. cooking, toasting your coriander and cumin, um, making a spinach gravy, then topping it with chonk,
0: yeah. which is these spices tempered in oil. Oh, we're getting to chonk later. Yeah. We are getting to that. <laughs> I love that word saying it out loud. I love cooking with it. Um, tempering is the shit Um, but let's talk about your FAQ you start the book with a very ambitious very fun FAQ Mm -hmm. which I think is great reader listener hopefully you will be a reader after you listen to this you should definitely pick it up um, and read the FAQ it's really fun but one question why should I trust you like why was that even an issue
1: I think that trust is a really important element in cookbooks You know, I feel like readers want to know that cookbook authors have done the work and they didn't just like slap together recipes without testing them. That, you know, Mm -hmm. it's a really thought through book. I want people to know the work that went into the book. You know, I wrote the recipes. My mom wrote the recipes. I tested them. Mm -hmm. They were tested by three other people, Mm -hmm. then retested by me. Like, I feel like that work is important to Mm -hmm. To, to say if when, when someone r- invests in a cookbook tries a recipe it doesn't work that's really disheartening yeah
0: you test it more than like 99% of the people I must say like who do cookbooks <laughs> that system I mean we interview all sorts of cookbook authors yeah I mean that's really good so congratulations wow
1: that's that's really interesting people don't test that rigorously
0: no they don't i mean some do i'm discounting a many but i think there's plenty of um cookbook authors who kind of fall down the rabbit hole of of other things and ultimately the manuscript deadline happens and it's like wow we've only tested this once yeah but three times is pretty impressive and i've uh, i've i've really absorbed a lot from the book and it feels like it's very well thought through so congratulations thank
1: you that's so surprising to me because i feel like i was terrified of the recipe it's not working like what like what do you even say to someone whether like it just didn't you know and or at least when a recipe doesn't work out you can help them troubleshoot it if you've tested it that many times which is
0: you should be super familiar with the recipes Yeah. yeah absolutely agree another question from the faq why are there no curries in the book priya (laughs)
1: <laughs> um oh god i just i hate that word so much i feel like i've just been spent the last month traveling around the country telling people why they need to stop using the word curry keep and saying it rolling tea and non-bread <laughs> uh curry basically the long and short of it it is a word that was popularized by european colonizers in india and sort of propagated throughout cookbooks and restaurants in the west used to sort of reduce this really you know breathtaking cuisine mm-hmm. that's super diverse to, like, a single entity, which, mm-hmm. you know, when I think of the word curry, I think of just, like, a sort of homogenous stew. Yeah. And, you know, nothing makes me angrier than people are like, I don't like Indian food because I just take curry. And I'm just like, what the what? hell does that mean? And
0: I feel like you would actually say that to their face. Yeah. You're the kind of – you would yeah. say it to their face. I'm
1: the person who – I was at an Indian restaurant <laughs> the other day, and I heard someone say – chai tea and I literally like it like it was like excuse me uh it's actually just chai <laughs> yeah
0: it's redundant non-bread 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 redundant all
1: soup oh there's so many yeah it's so annoying
0: it is and I think honestly the more you can remind listeners about these these small things the mm-hmm. better because they aren't small things. These are Totally.
1: Aren't and I still see, I like still look at like newsletters for food publications or just like open food publications and see chai tea or non bread. And I'm just yeah. like, this is why, why are we still doing this? Yeah.
0: Um, I love the FAQ. I just, I keep stressing a uh, listener to, to pick up the book and, and page through those first uh, pages. <laughs> uh, okay. Let's get into chonk because it is a really, really brilliant cooking technique. Um, why is chonk so critical to understanding Indian home cooking?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's important because, you know, spices are obviously a really essential part of Indian cooking, but it's not Indian cooking is not just like tossing spices into a pot and like, you know, hoping for the best. You have to really build those layers of flavor. And I think chonk sort of shows all that you can achieve with spices. What you're doing basically is heating up some oil or ghee, adding your spices. The spices, the oils in them sort of get activated when exposed to heat, and so you're getting the most out of the spices, and they also develop this really wonderful texture, and then the oil gets infused with the flavor of the spices. When you pour it over a dal, you've got the richness of the ghee infused with the spices, the texture of the spices, the aromatics from the spices, and that's like really when you're rocking and rolling.
0: Mm -hmm. And it really coats the 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 starches that are quite bland with this fragrant um oil
1: right? yeah i mean they're the st- i mean yeah you can do it with rice you can do it like we do it with dal which is already spiced yeah. with you know turmeric bay leaf salt but chonk just sort of brings it alive in level. this amazing way.
0: Yeah, I think most like Western cooking, you know, is like having a stew and they are just like putting the spices into the liquid, right? Yeah. And shaking it in, which is very different.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like I feel like the reason why Indian food is so bright and, co- and yeah. complex is because we're, we're activating every single one of those spices and building those flavors slowly.
0: Um I want to talk about uh, asafoetida, right Hing you said that right.
1: yeah, you said it just right.
0: right on. <laughs> I love that ingredient. I bought it once uh-huh. um, on Amazon maybe five years ago um, and I, my wife made me throw it out. Uh, I love my wife shout out Mara. but <sighs> it just wasn't working in our in our small New York City apartment. Is that a common thing? and what first off, what is it?
1: Well, Hing, its basically a—it's like a tree resin, essentially, um, and it has this really pungent, almost like garlicky taste to so it. So great, and it's—it's oh. it's delicious. But yeah, you really have to keep it stored in a tight container because it—you know—the—the the smell is very <laughs> strong. It's delicious, but the smell is strong. Um, like I keep mine like in a container in another container. Mm-hmm in my pantry, and it's like a teeny tiny container. Just a pinch will go a really long way.
0: So what are you you cooking? How are you cooking with it?
1: Um, I put it, I mean, I put it in chonk all the time, like especially when I'm doing uh, cumin seeds in ghee with dried red chilies and some cayenne. I'll put a pinch of chonk and that just really just adds so much to it all. Um, when I'm making like alugobi mm-hmm. uh, right when I'm like, once I'm almost done with it, I'll add a little bit of like a pinch of chonk and just kind of s- toss it around. I think the key with, or sorry, asafetida, I think the key with asfatita is that, it's something – you can't flavor something with asfatita alone, right. but it's sort of a supplemental flavor that brings out the flavor of everything It's else. like MSG yeah, in like, a way. Yeah, just like MSG. You have to cut MSG yeah.
0: with kosher salt and other yeah. spices for it to actually activate. Right. But asfatida is naturally occurring, Right
1: yeah it's, yeah it's
0: an organic product yeah so.
1: exactly very
0: interesting where you just buy it on amazon or at their yeah local market. yeah
1: i mean i yeah i have bought it on amazon you can get it at any patel brothers or other mm-hmm. indian store and yeah in the teeny teeny tiny containers that's all you need like don't buy yeah. a big thing of aspatita. yeah no
0: get a small listener <laughs> like you should act pre and i when you buy it and you cook with it we'd love to see to see that happen yeah for sure so cool let's talk about your doll, which you entitle um, in bold letters in the book, Priya's doll is the best doll. <laughs> Truth?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's really funny because I feel like you're not supposed to pick favorites <laughs> among dolls, but I just yeah. had to be honest that the Priya's doll is the best doll. It is basically um, like those sort of whole brown lentils, and when yeah. you cook them down, they just get this amazing like nutty buttery flavor and yeah it's like 10 times better than french lentils they look a lot like french lentils but they're so much better and you know when you put that chunk on top I mean they're just so good and I feel like a lot of restaurants you'll taste a lot of cream and butter and this thal tastes like it has Mm -hmm. butter in it but there's no butter just the thal gets Mm -hmm. so buttery when you cook it this way it's so good. I mean, it takes a little longer. It takes a little bit extra time, so I don't mm. always have time to make it. That's why there's the most basic thal because that cooks in six minutes. This cooks in twenty minutes. Oh, but that's it's, not
0: bad. Twenty minutes, come on. It's no, no, no it's not yeah, bad at yeah, all. Yeah, I
1: am yeah. just saying, yeah. from my lazy cook self. No, no, no. Sometimes you don't have you don't have twenty minutes. But I think it's the best thal.
0: Speaking of uh, quick cooking, I have to shout out one of your last recipes is a dump cake. You have yep. a dump cake in the book. I what have t- a dump cake. <laughs> have, was that just like something you were talking to your editor about? Like, hey, listen, I got to do this dump cake. No, this dump cake I, is required.
1: I, I knew the dump cake was going to be in the book like the day I sold this book. <laughs> I mean, I can't think of a dessert that's been sort of more – a one of the desserts has been like a bigger part of my life. I would go yeah. to Ann Arbor, Michigan and visit my aunt Anvita and mm. she's an unbelievable cook, but what I loved was this dump cake that she made yeah. and she got it from an aunt who I think read it in some like a um, 1940s Americana cookbook oh. and just found it intriguing and you know baking as we know it isn't isn't as common in Indian households and she was like, "Oh, this is super easy. You just layer box mm. cake mix, butter, pecans cherry pie filling what yeah
0: cherry pie filling just, cher- just shows the up in there
1: cherry pie filling uh, it's so good we'd have it with like a scoop of vanilla ice cream uh, and it's so easy too it's so good i was i felt so bad because when i called anvita to ask her for the recipe hmm. she was like wait you're writing an indian cookbook and this is what you want from me <laughs>
0: Oh man! <laughs> even though she
1: makes she's an unbelievable cook yeah but this is the recipe that i felt the most nostalgic for
0: um I think your book is kind of sneaky in that it's basically vegetarian. You have one chicken dish and three fish dishes yep. in the entire book. Yep. What does this mean?
1: I mean it's it's just how we eat at home. Yeah. I feel like um I never grew up eating much meat or craving meat. We we not my family didn't eat meat, not for like religious reasons, but just cultural reasons. Mm-hmm. It's not how they grew up. Um, you know, our the standard north indian meal for us at least was lentils rice a uh, salad a sabzi and roti and that was plenty filling like there was yeah. no room we didn't we didn't need yeah. meat and i also and i didn't want to make a big thing about it although no. ma- i maybe should have because so many people ask if the book is vegetarian and i'm really excited to say it is yeah. but yeah it's just how we ate and it's been really cool to see like i feel like this is how more and more people are eating they don't need me to be the center of the table
0: it's it's very modern in that way and i like that you didn't oversell it personally i think that might have like distracted a little bit from the overall meaning of this book which is the hybridized exciting world of indian home cooking right Mm -hmm. and you don't need to like put that it's why the ish it's like you don't need to put that in a box right yeah how are people, like, when you're, you've been on the road for a month. Are people understanding the recipes? Are they getting yeah. what you're trying to do?
1: People kind of get it immediately. I feel like nice. there is so much-ish cooking out there, but it's not explicitly branded that way. Yeah. So I think that, like, this kind of thing is really familiar. It's like the classic immigrant story. You know, you move to a new country. You right. search for the flavors of home. You don't have access to all the ingredients, so these hybridized dishes come about. Um, I also think that, like... I think people are really surprised in a good way about how simple the dishes are. Yeah. I think people kind of expect Indian food to be this laborious task. A lot of people do. But, mm-hmm. you know, these dishes are the things that my mom made when she only had 20 minutes.
0: Yeah. And they are they are legitimately 20 minute recipes. I've, I've tried them. So let's move on to some of your work at taste because you've mm-hmm. written quite a bit of uh, quite a few articles for us. Um, I want to go over your yogurt column. The yeah. America, the country's best yogurt <laughs> column. Yeah, I kind of pushed you into that one as your editor. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know if you like it.
1: Um, no, I like it. I mean, yeah. I, I honestly didn't. I didn't have any other name yeah. ideas. I'm the worst at headlines <laughs> or names for things. Yeah. Don't ever, don't ever ask me. I'll only give you bad suggestions.
0: <laughs> okay, so why yogurt? Why why write a column about yogurt?
1: Uh, it is my it is my favorite food. Yeah. ever like of all time. I grew up with my dad making me homemade yogurt that was just a given and i kind of took it upon myself to kind of be this uh, yogurt researcher i would go to the store and try all these different brands and note this one was different in creaminess this one had different fat content this one's made with goat's milk this one's made with cow's milk and i just find yogurt to be like one of the most interesting and also one of the most underutilized ingredients in the us like in the in india we're turning it into soups we're turning it into desserts we're yeah. turning it into salads and sides in the u.s i feel like people kind of just see it as like your yogurt and granola yeah. breakfast and it's only
0: breakfast in the yeah, States. yeah and
1: not beyond that and i think there are there's so many interesting things that have happened to yogurt in the u.s you know we just i just did a piece about um Dairy-free yogurt, which is really Mm -hmm. fascinating, like all of a sudden dairy-free yogurt tastes good. Mm -hmm. There are good brands of dairy-free yogurt. You know, we borrowed that tart frozen yogurt Mm -hmm. uh, concept from South Korea and it became this huge hit in the U.S. But that success was so fleeting. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm really interested in, you know, I'm interested in the science behind yogurt, but I'm also interested in like the, the culture behind yogurt and the way that we... Uh, have, have treated it through the years. So I don't know. I feel like I have infinite things I want to well, say about it.
0: it the column <laughs> you, you're on like number five, you just filed a copy. I've not read it, but it's a, a rant against nonfat yogurt.
1: Yeah. I
0: <laughs> tease that one. Out. I'm, I can't wait to read it.
1: Yeah. I have a lot of strong feelings. I have a feeling you're not want me to like say even stronger things. But I mean, basically, the the kicker is like, unless I need a substitute for spackling paste, you'll never <laughs> find fat free yogurt in my fridge. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I interviewed a bunch of chefs who, you know, cook cuisines where yogurt is essential. And people were like, you know, what I I think fairly harsh towards fat-free yogurt you know mm. charles billies who runs Soufla in san francisco was like if i were italian i'd never suggest fat-free mozzarella oh, man. why would i suggest you buy fat-free yogurt even reduced fat. yeah
0: <laughs> no it's a good call uh speaking of reporting and interviewing chefs uh you're a great reporter i just that's one of your many strengths and you wrote this piece last year about the sun-dried tomato trend mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um how did it happen Where did it go? What did you find out about it?
1: I was so excited to do that piece because I personally love sun-dried tomatoes and I'm bummed (laughs) that they're no longer trendy. Um, I mean, basically, it kind of happened like what happened to kale like they yeah. at first when it came out, people really excited. This is something different. You're taking something familiar like yeah. a tomato and drying it out and giving it these sort of umami like mm-hmm. qualities. But then it was everywhere. Then it was on the menu. It was on the menu at fine dining restaurants. but It was also on the menu at like Panera Bread. And as soon as it hits the Panera oh, Bread man. menu, chefs are like, oh, this is super passe. Yeah. And it was immediately gone. But It was fascinating talking to Ruth Reichel about it because she hates the sun-dried tomato, and she sort of tells me about how when she was a critic and she'd see it on the menu, she would just sigh, and it represents all the worst qualities of the tomato is what she told me, and it was really funny because I was just quietly like, well, I I disagree. Disagree with you, Ruth,
0: <laughs> but thank you for your intel. Love, Ruth. And you wrote this piece about the budino, which I think um, was also a bit of a trend. It still remains. What is the budino, and why is it so important?
1: I mean, budino is basically just a fancy name for a pudding. Yeah. Like, you know, as one of the chefs pointed out, you're just, you know, you're just taking something that is very well known in the U.S. and like putting a slapping a nice name on it and serving it in flavors like salted caramel mm-hmm. and giving it like a cookie crust.
0: But well, you could really got into why it was such a, a, a kind of a tool for the restaurant chef. It's yeah. high margin. I'm sorry, uh, high profit. Yeah. And it's uh, easy to make.
1: Yeah, it's super easy to make. Like they would tell me that they would make like you know, a hundred Boudinos during pre-service and, you know, when someone ordered it, literally all they had to do was just like go over to a speed rack, grab one and serve it. Someone told me that um, uh, they did like a restaurant week menu where they gave the option of four desserts and there were 200 covers and 200 out of 200 covers chose (laughs) Boudino.
0: It's just one of those things. It's like so it's rich. It's like mousse, but it's not quite there. It has a lot of salt Yeah, it's. I mean, it's
1: so good, especially like when budino is good. It's good. And also the other point that they made, which I think is a really good point, is in this era of getting a dessert for the table, budino is a single serving. So you get a budino and it's all yours. Yours. You don't have to share, which I think is a great point.
0: No one likes doing the (laughs) the fork dance with shared desserts. The fork dance is no fun. My
1: friend Kelly calls it competitive dessert eating.
0: (laughs) I... I had that happen recently. It's just so embarrassing.
1: Yeah, you only get like one bite.
0: I know. And you have to like do the small bite thing. Yep. Let's do that story. (laughs) Yeah. Competitive dessert eating. Let's do that story. This is a good brainstorm. (laughs) Priya, I want to ask you just really what is next for you? We ask all of our guests on The Taste Podcast. If you could do a dream book um, without like budget or travel or just really the truly the dream book project, Mm. what would it be?
1: That's a really good question um, honestly I I would love to do something that like allows me to travel around India because I've only ever been to Kerala and Delhi where I'm from. I mean I would love to sort of look at all of the ways the that like the diaspora has formed like I was talking to Andrew and Wen about how in um, Saigon, There's an Indian, Indo-Vietnamese community or, you know, the uh, Jews who post-World War II settled down in Bombay. Mm. Like, what does Indian Jewish cuisine look like? I don't know. Like, I I mean, like, Indo-Chinese food is well-trodden territory, but I'd love to go to Calcutta and go to some of those OG places Mm. run by Chinese immigrants living in India or their kids. I don't know. I just, like, love... I love looking at the ways that cuisines like meet and mingle in really natural ways in the way that my book has done it. So it'd be really interesting to see to hear other people's stories.
0: I think your reporting chops would really shine through too with that with that work. I think it's it's a very challenging project, but I think you're up for it.
1: Yeah, I think actually someone I know is doing something somewhat similar to that. So at least if I don't get to write the book, I get to mm. read the book later.
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, good luck. Thank you for joining the Taste Podcast.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: We're joined by Max Falkowitz, producer of Taste Food Questions, which appears on the Taste Daily podcast feed. Listener, you should subscribe to this. Max, I got a question. What is the difference between ice
3: cream and gelato? So it depends if you're asking an Italian or a reasonable person. (laughs) but basically gelato is the italian word for ice cream and they're essentially the same thing and depending on where you are in italy gelato is going to be gelato is going to be different so in some places it's going to be more rich and eggy and creamy and in some places it's going to be much lighter now in practice what we tend to mean in the u.s between ice cream and gelato is uh according to the FDA, which is the governing body of all things related to frozen dessert rules and decisions. Also kind of a big bummer a lot of times in our world. Extremely a bummer. Uh, American ice cream is classified as containing more than 10% butterfat by weight. If you want to sell frozen custard, which is ice cream with eggs, it has to contain 1.6% egg yolk solids. Gelato doesn't meet that threshold. Gelato is made with a lot less fat and oftentimes but not exclusively without eggs. So the butterfat percentage is much cl- is closer to around 4 to 5% depending and what that means is it's 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 a lot lighter on the tongue. It's going to it's not going the fat isn't going to numb your mouth as much and so the flavors come through really really. and brittle. there's a scoopability uh for
0: gelato that is uh, that is second to none really i mean had, that's why a lot of people like it i think you can just really
3: spoon it within a second of being in the bowl right and the wild thing about that is it's entirely a function of temperature if you were to store gelato at the temperature that you store american ice cream in american freezers or in american scoop shops it would be hard as a brick because it doesn't have enough fat and it doesn't have enough air pumped into it to to be that scoopable So the trick that gelato shops use is they keep their their freezers at warmer temperatures, and they serve the gelato pretty much the day that it's made. And both of those things factor into making something that's very fresh and very scoopable and that tastes really bright and clean on the tongue.
0: Putting on the spot, what's your favorite gelato flavor, Max?
3: Pistachio, always. Such an Italian flavor. I mean, it really, you think about Sicily, right? Real, like the the so Sicily is is like no no nowhere, nowhere does gelato like Sicily and nowhere does pistachios like Sicily and if you have really good Sicilian pistachios they taste almost juicy like they have this incredible honey bright juicy flavor to them that just comes through so clearly in a really clean, clean Sicilian gelato.
0: Put you on the spot. We can't get to Sicily, but we're in America. Maybe in a city. Where am I going to get some good gelato?
3: So, it's not technically gelato but i think it's very much gelato in spirit uh, brooks headley's superiority burger is making arguably the best ice cream slash gelato in new york city right now and for six dollars you get a little composed dessert of one or two flavors and a topping and it's clean it's beautiful you're eating it the day that it's made and it captures that gelato experience perfectly
0: and he shops at the farmer's market and really it's a seasonal flavor typically with him
3: yeah it, it changes by the day sometimes by the hour
0: Really exciting place. Thanks, Max. Appreciate it.
3: Thanks so much.
2: The Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Anna Hiesel. The show is produced by Gabrielle Lewis, studio recordings by Pat Stango, theme music by Steve Rydell. Interviews are recorded live at Books Are Magic in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn, and at Penguin Random House Studios in Manhattan visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com. Thanks for listening.